0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC.
1: Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news. Often over drinks, I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis.
0: Great to be with you, Ashley. We're in the home stretch for the season of Jesuitical.
1: We are. We passed Memorial Day, so it's. Well, not officially summer, but (laughs) semi-officially.
0: Yeah, it's that nice, like little taste. Um, I remember in school, I always like got out a couple, like the first or second weekend in June. And Memorial Day Mm -hmm. was always like, you're close, but that's what it's also like for us as podcasters. We we do have. (laughs) A uh, few more great episodes coming your way, but then we're gonna we're gonna take some time off later on this summer.
1: Yes, and in the spirit of summer, what are we drinking today, Zach?
0: We're drinking White Claw Hard Seltzer, which some people have said is the <laughs> official drink of summer. That claim has been tried has tried to have been made several times, I- at least three summers in a row now. But I will admit, it is a very refreshing. Mix up in your in the beverage department.
1: Yes, and much like you can only wear white pants and dresses between Memorial Day and Labor Day, you can have White Claw after Memorial Day. So we're there. Yes, and I've got the blackberry, which is a new 2021 flavor.
0: It's, a, it's a, I heard quickly
1: becoming my favorite.
0: <laughs> white Claw heard about the wild success of the Cannonball cocktail for the Ignatian Year that we invented, which featured the blackberry, and so they had to that come out with the blackberry it. flavor. Yeah, so I've got All the right. old fashioned black cherry. All but right. cheers! Cheers. Now, when you virtually cheers me, do you cheers your microphone or your webcam?
1: Uh, The webcam.
0: Yeah, same. Yeah, Yeah,
1: (laughs) Very um, precarious holding my drink over the laptop, as longtime listeners of the show will know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure which equipment is more expensive, but uh, be careful (laughs) wherever you choose. All right, and who are we talking to this week, Ashley?
1: This week, we're talking to Eve Tushnit. Eve is an author and a frequent contributor to America Magazine. One of her most recent books is Gay and Catholic: Accepting My Sexuality, Finding Community, Living My Faith.
0: Yeah, in Eve's most recent article for America Media is titled Conversion Therapy is Still Happening in Catholic Spaces, and its effects on LGBT people can't be devastating. And we wanted to talk to Eve about this article for a couple reasons. One, it's Healthcare Month at America Media, and as we know, the mental health effects in particular of conversion therapy on LGBT people, as the article says, really can be devastating. So Eve does a great job reporting some of the stories of people who've gone through things like that. But it's also June, which means it's the start of Pride Month. So we thought this was an important conversation to feature right up front in June.
1: So stick around for our conversation with Eve Tushnet, but first we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic News of the Week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach?
0: So this Tuesday, the Vatican announced a major overhaul of the criminal section of the Code of Canon Law, making it clear that adults and not just children can be victims of sexual abuse.
1: Right. So, some background on the Code of Canon Law. It's the legal system that applies to over 1 billion Catholics worldwide and is considered the oldest continuously operating legal system in the Western world. And as (laughs) a very old set of laws, it it can need some updates every once in a while.
0: Yeah, that's right. And this is the first time that the Code of Canon Law has been revised since 1983, and the changes in how the church is going to address sexual abuse specifically are coming after 14 years of study. And you know, the whole there's a number of changes contained in the law. I don't have my canon law degree, so I don't really feel uh, fit to explain all of those. But we did want to focus on one in particular, and that's how the church is responding to sex abuse. How that's going to change.
2: Right.
1: So the church has always considered sex between a priest and an adult to be a sin because priests are supposed to be chaste and celibate. But until this change, sexual relations between a priest and adult would only be punishable under canon law if it involved the use of force or threats. And under these new changes, they add to that sexual relations that involve abuse of authority. So if a priest is in, you know, a position of power, whether just you know, because it's a vulnerable adult or just because of the power imbalance that's inherent between a cleric and a lay person, that can be considered as a reason to, you know, defrock a priest who's done this or impose other sanctions.
0: Yeah, and I think that is reflective uh, of where society is moving, especially after the Me Too movement, about, you know, what we understand as sexual abuse and sexual misconduct. The spectrum extends beyond our traditional understandings sometimes. And another update is that canon law also now recognizes is that lay people who hold positions in the church, so like, I think like school principals or leaders of lay movements, any lay people who work for some type of institutional arm in the church, they also can be punished for abusing children and adults.
1: Right. And finally, the new law also codifies the responsibility of bishops to report abuse. So this was a change that Pope Francis made kind of of his own accord back in 2019. But this updates the canon law to include that. So a bishop can now be removed from office for, quote, culpable negligence, or if he fails to report sex crimes to church authorities. Yeah,
0: that's right. And so this comes after, three years after, Theodore McCarrick's scandal in 2018, um, which was when a man came forward with a credible allegation that he, as a minor, had been abused by McCarrick. We, we learned that McCarrick had also abused a number of seminarians when he was a bishop, and that higher-ups in the church knew about it.
1: Right. So that's really what kicked off this conversation in earnest about what we define as sexual abuse within the church. So I think, you know, obviously it would have been great if this change had happened earlier. But as you mentioned, the church is kind of reflecting what's happening in the broader culture at this point with the Me Too movement. And secular culture has not itself, you know, found the perfect way to adjudicate these cases that are often, you know, really complicated.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I'll say just... In my own thinking about this news, as I was reflecting, it can seem a little repetitive because, as you said, you know, Pope Francis had made some changes with what's called a motu proprio earlier and different bishops' conferences on a national level have enacted different protocols. And this is, you know, a legal way of addressing the huge problem that is sexual abuse in our church. But I'm I I'm encouraged in some respect to just see it come up again and again in all these different safeguards because as we know, like all it takes is one abuse of a, a power or authority taking advantage of a system that doesn't have a safeguard in place, and so it's good to see the church continually make changes on this front.
1: Right, and of course the changes are only as good as the enforcement of this new law. But like you said, it's it's a hopeful development.
0: What's our next story, Ashley?
1: So Zach, I know you're watching the NBA playoffs, right? You're you're a pro basketball fan.
0: Oh, absolutely. And My wife has started to have a Pavlovian response to whenever she hears basketball start to play, she will be asleep within like five minutes, which I find preposterous. Um, And I think that Pope Francis would also find it preposterous.
1: Yes. Well, we know Pope Francis's favorite sport is soccer, but he did have some kind things to say to some basketball players recently. On May 31st, he was in an audience with members of the Italian Basketball Federation, and he said, quote, yours is a sport that lifts you up to the heavens, it is a sport that looks upwards toward the basket.
0: Yes, and it's a real challenge for uh, for people who are, as he says, used to living with their eyes always on the ground. Which I, I don't know if that was like a subtle dig at soccer because I have to look at the ball <laughs> at my feet when I'm playing. Uh, I, I appreciated this as a huge basketball fan. Basketball's had some ins with the Vatican lately because in November there was a group of NBA players that went and talked to Pope Francis, and they were talking not about the sport really, but about their movements for social justice here in the United States that Pope Francis has had a keen interest in. So I I am all for this basketball Catholic Vatican crossover. See what I did there?
1: Who do you think Pope Francis would root for?
0: Who? You know, I think the Knicks are most in need of his prayers right now. Listeners, you'll know whether or not they've uh, been eliminated from the playoffs or not. But whether they have moved on or not, uh, that franchise is just in continual need of prayers. And the you know millions of people who live in New York, those prayers are not enough. So I think he would go to where the need is greatest. So I'm going to say Pope Francis is a New York Knicks fan.
1: To the margins of the playoffs. <laughs> that's, that's
0: right. That's <laughs> right.
1: Joining us from Washington, D.C. is Eve Tushnet. Eve is a writer and author of Gay and Catholic, Accepting My Sexuality, Finding Community, Living My Faith. Welcome to Jesuitical, Eve. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for coming on. So you recently wrote a deeply reported feature for America magazine titled Conversion Therapy is Still Happening in Catholic Spaces and Its Effects on LGBT People Can Be Devastating. And for this, you talked to a number of Catholics who have had experiences with conversion therapy. But before we get into their stories, can you first just define for us what conversion therapy is?
2: Yeah. So it's really an umbrella term. And nowadays, it's mostly used by people who oppose the practice. You're rarely going to find a therapist who says, oh, I do gay conversion therapy, in part because it's banned in a lot of places, especially for minors. But the definition that we were using in the article, which I think is fair uh, is that it's any form of therapy which views as its goal change of orientation that the purpose of the therapy is to turn you straight and so whatever theory people are using to make this happen if that's the purpose then we're calling it conversion therapy and we had people who had therapists who had a range of different ideas about how this should go about
0: and you know maybe what would someone who practices it call it
2: it depends. Some people would say reparative therapy, which I believe refers to repairing wounds that people have experienced that they believe led to the development of being gay. Uh, another umbrella term you'll sometimes hear, but again, mostly from more academic people, is uh, sexual orientation change efforts. Anything that you do that's intended to make you more straight.
0: Got it. And what are some of like the philosophical underpinnings behind this? I I guess there's, it sounds like there is an assumption that being gay is something you can fix or change. Is, Is there anything else underpinning that?
2: Yeah. One of the things that I realized as I began talking to people who had had this experience of formal therapy or counseling to change their orientation was how much of it resonated with stuff I and other gay Catholics had heard who had never tried therapy or counseling of any kind, that the underlying assumptions actually are pretty widespread in Catholic circles And they include things like the idea that people become gay because of negative experiences, especially in childhood. So like if you didn't get along with other boys or other girls, that may have alienated you from them and later you become gay. Or you have a bad relationship with your same-sex parent. There's a bunch of different theories that people put forward. But the idea is that there is some wound at the origin of being gay, which if you then like work on and heal, you will possibly and people vary in how strongly they describe or how strongly they promise this you will possibly become straighter so i think that idea of the origin story is one of the biggest ones because it gives an explanation of how therapy could help how the fixing might work but there's a deeper in my opinion a deeper underlying assumption which is that the experience of being gay is sort of purely negative and that there's nothing that experience can teach you about yourself. There's no gift that it can offer to you or to the church. Uh, There's sort of the, if you do therapy and it works for you, you will kind of dissolve into the straight majority and any gay feelings or experiences you had before that can be just sort of pushed to one side, leaving no trace in what it means for you to be Catholic or your experience of God. And that I think is sort of the The best underlying belief. And I think everybody I talked to for this article went through a process of ultimately, regardless of where they ended up, if they stayed Catholic, if they were still practicing the church's teachings on sexual ethics, or if they were in a different church, in a different way of life, whatever, I think they all ended up working through that underlying belief and coming to say, no, there's something valuable here. There's something that I'm actually being told in the experience of being gay that I can be grateful for and that I don't need to think of as pure." something to reject or flee.
1: You mentioned that you yourself have not been through, you never experienced any contact with conversion therapy, so I'm wondering what motivated you to look into this issue?
2: Well, one thing is just that I did have friends. Some of the people I talked to for the article are people I'd known before. Uh, and I also you know, have met other people who have had varying amounts of contact with various forms of conversion therapy. And like I said, as I talked to people about their experiences, what was striking was how much of it resonated with things that I or friends of mine had heard in the confessional or from their parents or in other settings that were not at all sort of formal therapeutic contexts.
0: What's the mainstream, I guess, medical, psychological view on this type of practice?
2: Basically, all of the mainstream psychological and psychiatric associations have issued statements, I think this is right, have issued statements at best very, very skeptical toward the possibility or the goodness of sexual orientation change efforts.
1: And does the church have an official stance on this type of therapy? And has it changed over time?
2: The catechism doesn't make any claims about why people have this experience and certainly don't make any claims as to like, here's how you can fix it. That's just not there.
0: Well, I think that's interesting because I feel like in people's imagination, you might find this view accepted in the hierarchy. But one of the things that came out of your article is that pretty prevalent among, I guess, a different group of Catholics. Uh, Maybe this is the professional Catholic class or the Catholic sexual ethics speaker circuit. Is that correct? Or are there other places that people might be encountering some of those same philosophical underpinnings that you talked about earlier?
2: So I think there's a lot of different pathways by which people end up in what the mindset that ends up pushing people into conversion therapy. One of them is that there's a surprisingly strong Freudian influence in a lot of Catholic psychologizing. One, I would say, is for a long time, courage. The apostolic courage was the mainstream way for, at least in the U.S., for priests, bishops, et cetera, to minister to anybody who came to them with it, saying, I experienced same-sex attraction or I'm gay. The kind of standard, I think, thing you would do was say, well, we have courage. And courage's approach varies a lot based on where you go. So if you're experiencing courage has been different from what I'm about to say, like, that's, like, I understand that. But the founder of Courage, Father John Harvey, was himself very deeply influenced by conversion therapy ideas. He himself promoted orientation change therapy, especially for minors. And while Courage itself has, I think, always said, we don't require people to try orientation change, that isn't sort of a part of our program, the underlying ideas of viewing being gay as purely a matter of sexual temptation... And
0: Or a cross to bear, as yeah. a, I feel like other language I've heard.
2: Yeah, right. And again, in some chapters, not all, an emphasis on healing childhood wounds or becoming more comfortable with your masculinity. It's almost courage, I think, in most places is, is almost all men, but becoming more comfortable with your gender expression and uh, with people of your gender. I think that's another source of kind of authority, right, for these ideas that, that, that being gay is basically a failure to be fully comfortable as a man. Which comes up in a lot of the interviews that I did.
1: Yeah, I want to I talk about those and try to understand, you know, when a, when a gay Catholic goes through conversion therapy, I, you know, what are they maybe internalizing, being told about themselves, and what are kind of the dangerous effects that that can have on their self-worth?
2: Yeah, uh, one of the things that several of my interviewees said was that part of the power of the conversion therapy narrative is that it often it draws on real experiences that lots of people have had not everybody uh, I would not say that I felt particularly co- in conflict with other girls I have a good relationship with my parents but like as it happens lots of people of all sexual orientations have troubled relationship with their parents or with their same-sex peers
0: yeah newsflash.
2: <laughs> right and well and, and in fact one interview I didn't use this interview but one guy explicitly said that it had been revelatory for him after being told for years that he was gay because of these experiences with his peers and because of the emotional repression that that cause and that he found it very hard to kind of express himself with other men and be vulnerable and open with them and that this was all because he was gay. And his straight best friend was like, I feel this all the time.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Don't, don't ever. Yeah. I'm sure that had to be shocking if you got into a circle of straight men trying to express themselves and their deep emotional needs.
2: <laughs> right. So... I think, you know, people are told some stuff which often can resonate because it's drawing on common experiences. And one interviewee even pointed out that you can argue that for some people, it's the timeline that's backward, that you begin to realize that you're different from other boys or that you're different from the model that your parents want for you. And that is what causes the conflict. But the conversion therapy model explains it, that the conflict is what causes the gayness. And so people hear that and they're like, well, I do have both of those things. And so that kind of reinforces an idea of themselves as essentially lacking and that the conflicts that they have are unique to them, are sort of like, because they're part of this stigmatized group, which they're often pressured by their therapist to keep secret, it becomes a focus of like a deep feeling of inadequacy. Several interviewees talked about, you know, I began to really feel that there was something wrong fundamentally with the way that I expressed emotions, the way that I sort of related to other people. And I did all these fairly extreme things to try to fix how I related to other people. And often they would see some positive changes people would say, I became more self-confident uh, or I was able to open up to my dad, but they still felt because they had not become any less gay or any more straight that the fundamental broken thing had not been fixed.
0: What happens then, right? So you've done all these things and you're still quote unquote broken. Where does that leave a person?
2: Several people said basically the same thing, which was I tried all these things and they would list out, you know, I went to therapy, I dated somebody of the opposite sex, I pursued a religious vocation, I tried developing stronger bonds with people of the same sex, maybe that would help. And like none of it made me any different in my sexual orientation. I've tried everything. And at that point, people either kind of fall into complete despair and contemplate suicide often, or they kind of give up in the other direction. They're like, well, whatever is right for me, it's not going to be what these people are telling me. All of the people I interviewed had to kind of rebuild their spiritual lives pretty much from the ground up, including the ones who were still Catholic, who were still practicing Catholics, because the thing that they had been told the Catholic faith required of them had completely failed. And at that point, it's either like, well, I'm not capable of being obedient, and therefore I'm just cut off from God without any hope of going back, or the thing that I've been told is obedience is just wrong. And sort of what do you do with that?
0: I was just gonna say, one of the striking things in your article, and I'd heard stats like this tossed around, is that LGBT people who have undergone conversion therapy, or something like twice as likely from the general population to have attempted suicide in the past 12 months.
2: Yeah, one woman in particular talked about the ways in which her experience of therapy made her much, much, much more despairing. Now, people often get into attempts to change their orientation because they're already in a lot of conflict and a lot of pain. And for her, she found that rather than helping her integrate these aspects of her life or accept herself or whatever, the therapy was pushing her more and more to view more and more aspects of herself as broken and pushing her in directions that kept failing for her. She described there were two guys that she had dated and each time her therapist would be like, here we go, this is the one, make it happen. And like, it didn't, (laughs) you know? And that was what really Pushed her into like a much, much deeper feeling of despair than she had been in. And again, she was in distress when this started. That's why she started therapy. I think that was probably the most dramatic, where it was very clear. You know, the experience of the therapy really made this intensely worse pretty quickly. For other people, it's a kind of a gnawing, it's almost like a a thing that had been to some extent confined to one part of their life, a distress begins to spread and pervade a lot of other aspects of their understanding of who they are and how they experience other people and their relationships. We've
1: talked about the kind of underpinnings of conversion therapy, and I just want to give you a chance to maybe make the case for why they're flawed.
2: So the narrative that conversion therapy gives is the way that your desires become ordered, right, because all of us have some degree of disorder in our longing to give love and receive love from other people. None of us have figured out exactly how to do this right from the start. The narrative that conversion therapy gives you is that if you're gay, the way that your desires become ordered is to take what you've got right now and switch the object. So instead of having the object be ladies, it should be dudes. And this like, consistently doesn't happen for lots and lots and lots of people, but... One possible question you could ask is what if the object is not the problem? what if there are ways to express your desire to love and to share your life with someone of the same sex that would nonetheless be in line with the Catholic faith whether that's through basic friendship, service to those in need covenant friendship or a, a celibate partnership which someone one person in the article is living in right now whatever that looks like, there are other ways of expressing rather than repressing or switching their longings. And I think that's a possibility that the whole idea behind conversion therapy kind of like disregards that that would be considered almost like giving in. That's one way of talking about what it misses but there's also a lot of other like positive aspects of being gay that you're sort of like not allowed to think about or talk about in many not all in many orientation change oriented spaces there's the ability to see things from the margins that other people may not be able to see the place of marriage and sexual relationships and romance in american culture and also in the church is quite outsized compared to what it would be if you looked at many 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 other catholic cultures of the past And one thing that you see if you are probably not going to get married in the church is, why is this the way that we tell people that we love one another? Why are marriage and sex and romance considered kind of the gold standard for loving another person as opposed to potentially having multiple ways to love and serve and give your life to others? But again, that would require you to say there's something good in the experience of being gay. There's something that I can actually offer because of what I've experienced here.
0: You know, someone who commented on your article, which I thought was telling, was she said, You can't call somebody intrinsically disordered and then expect, you know, nothing bad to happen. And she said that she was lucky she came out relatively undamaged. But I'm wondering if you think that there is something fundamentally that needs to change about the way the church talks about homosexuality, both from official magisterial sources, but also on a more day to day level in order to sort of like attack some of these underpinnings behind the ideas that are around conversion therapy.
2: Yeah, I would say there's really two things in particular that would be most helpful. I'm sure there's many. But I think two that would be the biggest one is that the language of disorder, although for Catholic, you know, Catholic intellectuals will be like, oh, this has a long and varied history. This word is actually about, you know, natural law or what have you and bringing your desires into order. But like when people hear it, especially with homosexuality, which has been treated as a psychiatric disorder so much in the modern past, they hear psychiatric terms. You know, we use the word disorder, I would say, primarily now to talk about stuff like substance abuse disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder, things that can be psychologically treated. And because that's like true of how Americans, you know, many and many Westerners treated homosexuality for quite some time, of course it gets interpreted in that context. And of course people hear it as this is a disorder to be fixed.
0: Well, especially as a young person, there's no young person who might hear that for the first time and who's immediately and th- going Thomas to think of, yeah, like, ah, yes, the teleology of something.
2: Right. So that's like, I mean, that's, it's in some sense, just a language problem. But it's a language problem that I think really does color how people experience what they think the church is telling them about being gay. And sort of related to that, there's then the question of, again, how do our desires become ordered? And here is where the second thing I think would do a lot of good, which is rescuing models of same-sex love, of saying same-sex love is good and the church has ways to guide you in it. The church is not just going to say, have you tried loving somebody of the opposite sex, but will say, we actually have some guidance and some wisdom to share with you about loving someone of the same sex. I think of biblical models like David and Jonathan, Ruth and Naomi, Jesus and and all of the disciples, all the men disciples, but especially his intimacy with John, the beloved disciple, that these are images that are deeply woven into salvation history. They're incredibly rich with theological resonance and their love between two adults of the same sex. They're not marital. They're not sexual. They're something else. There's something beautiful, holy, open to everybody. But I think of especial interest and like urgently needed by people trying to understand being gay in the context of obedient Catholic life, trying to be a Catholic who's doing all the things. You know, it was sort of revelatory when I was like, wait, all this stuff is actually already there.
1: So what do you say to people who, you know, would, yes, be happy for the language to change, get rid of intrinsically disordered, but who feel deeply called to a relationship that involves sex with someone of the same sex? Like a language change isn't necessarily going to do it for that person.
2: I don't pretend to have some kind of argument as to why is the church teaching the way it is? Why is the stuff in scripture the way it is? I think ultimately it's, For me, at least, it very much comes down to a question of trust for so many gay people. The church Christians have deeply damaged the trustworthiness of the church's witness here. And so, like, I basically am not going to blame anybody who's like, well, I don't trust the church the way you do on this stuff. Sorry.
1: You know, something that comes to mind now, just because it was recent, the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith released that document talking about how the Catholic Church cannot bless same-sex unions. And we saw a lot of hurt among gay Catholics when they heard that. It seems like, you know, they feel like they are singled out among all Catholics as having their sin, their identity under a microscope. So I'm wondering, what was your reaction to the document? And what did you hear from other gay Catholics?
2: Yeah. So what was fascinating and sad about that was that, you know, I spent a lot of my time talking with people who are trying to live the church's teaching as gay people. And they, too, were really hurt and disappointed by it, in part because it like the document itself says right out there are positive elements in these relationships and yet doesn't really tell you what to do about that because the CDF document assumes that anybody coming to a priest to have their same-sex relationship blessed is doing it as an imitation of marriage, thinking of it as a marriage, or doing it to bless a sexual relationship. They're just sort of like, well, there may be positive elements to this relationship, but that is not the important thing here. Instead of saying, what path forward do these people have? Like, Nobody has to come to the Catholic Church to get their relationship blessed. Maybe people who try to do that anyway are unusually willing to consider whether The Catholic Church has something to tell them. And so, if you're already far enough to see there's something good here, you guys love each other, at least make the effort to say, We have guidance for that love. You may still disagree, you know, and if you, we're going to tell you, This is the path that we have, or these are the possible paths that are open to you, okay. And you can either accept that or walk away. But to just say, You're doing something kind of good, but we are only going to give you guidance on the bad part (laughs) is wild to me. And of course people are going to feel like it's almost more of a slap in the face because they they know that something good is happening, that these are not simply relationships of sexual excess, as a lot of earlier Catholic theology used to kind of present it. And yet the love and all the good things, and all those positive elements, are just kind of then ignored. And there's no question of well, what can be salvaged here? What can be rescued within Catholic sexual ethic?
0: I'm wondering if you have any Maybe constructive advice for if there is someone listening to this who is gay and struggling with a lot of these things, or if, you know, there's someone who's a friend and is noticing that their friend is, you know, really struggling with how to fit all these puzzle pieces together in their identities in their life. Were there any things that were helpful either to you in your own experience or the people that you talked to throughout this interview that might have, yeah, I don't know, saved someone's sense of their self-worth?
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question. Some of the biggest things were simply finding other people who had been through some of the same experiences or who were simply gay and Christian. I think especially for the people who I talked to who were still trying to live out the Catholic sexual ethic or open to it. One thing that was absolutely crucial for them was that they were able to find people who were not ashamed to be gay. Who were themselves practicing Catholics. One guy in the article mentioned Chris Damien in particular. So he's someone you can look up if you are, in fact, listening to this right now and are like, but who are these people? You can also email me. I'm happy to connect people. My email is eve underscore tushnet, T U S H N E T, at yahoo.com. Yes, yahoo, really. Because I just think like that community, like when I became Catholic, I was already openly gay, but I literally knew nobody and I knew of. Nobody who was gay and was Catholic and was actually going to try to, like, do this stuff the way they tell you to do it. And I made a lot of mistakes because of that and did a lot of stuff that I regret. And I think for a lot of my interviewees, too, like, finding community is so crucial. There will be a point in your life where you will be grateful to be gay and maybe asking yourself, what would that mean? What would that look like? What are the things in this experience that I can be grateful for, regardless of what happens to me, whether I find the things that I think I'm looking for, whether my beliefs change, what like whatever, what are the things that I will be able to look back on and say, okay, there's something good here. This is something that I can just be grateful for.
1: Yeah. Well, Eve, thank you so much for reporting out the story and sharing it with us. We do have one last question for you that we ask all of our guests. If you could canonize one person, Catholic or not, living or dead, fictional or real, who would it be and why? So many choices.
2: I mean, certainly for the purposes of this interview, the, the super obvious choice would be Dunstan Thompson. He's an American poet who wrote some exceptionally powerful very painful World War II era poetry about his very confessional poetry so I, when I say about his I think I'm not really pushing it liaisons with uh, sort of anonymous sex with men he then met which was very scant like super scandalous at the war- in the World War II era he then met and fell in love with another man they settled down together many years later both of them become practicing Catholics and they spend the rest of their lives in domestic tranquility they become celibate they continue to live together they get permission from their bishop. To live together, which I personally would not have asked, <laughs> but uh, but they do. And the poetry that he writes after that is some of the most like sweet and gentle and sort of like lilting Catholic descriptions of heaven as friendship and home. There's one beautiful lines it's like something it's like "I've found the friend my childhood promised me," and. He goes from being a really good poet of one kind that I really like to being a really good poet of another kind. So I'm going to throw that out there. That's the best I can do for now.
0: Okay. I think it's a good one. All right. So St. Dustin Thompson, pray for us. Eve, thanks so much for, you know, as Ashley said, reporting the story and coming on the podcast to talk about it. Uh, where can people follow your work or anything that you want to plug right now?
2: Oh, sure. Uh, well, I guess one big thing is that I am having a, a sequel to *Gang Catholic coming out this late this fall from Ave Maria Press. It's called Tenderness. I think the subtitle is A Gay Christian Guide to Unlearning Rejection and Experiencing God's Extravagant Love. And as you may kind of guess from that subtitle, it deals with actually a lot of the stuff that the article did. That's probably the biggest thing. I guess my other stuff is typically on Twitter.
0: We'll link to all of that in our show notes, and in including the feature article that you wrote for America, which we'll just read the title one more time. Conversion therapy is still happening in Catholic spaces and its effects on LGBT people can be devastating. Eve, thanks so much.
2: Thank you. Thanks very much. If I could only read your mind then i could be the one you need i'm really good at taking care of everybody else but me maybe if i act real nice maybe if i smile real big maybe i could change the shape of who i am till i fit in i guess i Trying to be somebody else So I'll sing a song that only I can sing Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
1: All right. Now it's time for some housekeeping. We want to once again, shout out the newest podcast from the America Media Podcast Network, and that is the Gloria Purvis Podcast.
0: Yeah, Gloria has been putting out some really stellar episodes. There's two out right now, and they're both heavy hitters. This most recent one talking about what's going on in Catholic seminaries right now, and she has a really powerful testimony from a priest, Father Bruce Wilkinson, who experienced some pretty intense and horrible racism while he was in seminary, and Gloria and him have a really candid conversation about what's going on in our seminaries right now what needs to change are they being formed in ways to become priests that are responsive to the people of god and empathetic and aware of justice issues they can say it much better than i can so i'm going to point you to that it's the glory purpose podcast and if you Enjoy that. She's going to be on this show here in the coming weeks. So stay tuned. Look for that in your podcast feed.
1: And now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our lives this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach?
0: Yeah, I was struggling with what I was really going to talk about this week because there is a large temptation to phone it in sometimes when you're not feeling it. I had recently taken some time off and you know, who's looking for general God in, in the rest of vacation consolation. But I'll be honest, like, I have mostly been hearing a lot of static on the radio in my prayer life right now. And I know you've talked about this, but this entire, like, with the world opening up and dipping my toes into the social life of New York City and just, like, Seeing family and traveling, and haven't necessarily kept up with my my prayer life and my sacramental life in the same way, which then gets me in the cycle of just like guilt and despair, and then it's hard, and then I'm like, ah, I haven't talked to God in a while, and I'm just gonna put that off even further because then we're gonna have to address why I haven't. Clearly, the voice of the evil spirit saying, like, you've got to put off talking to God because you've put off talking to God in this like weird circular logic. I'm not out of the woods there yet, but I am hoping to just like drag myself back to mass here this week and, you know, show up until something happens is my plan. Yeah,
1: no. Sounds like those unread emails in my inbox. That That's the... exactly how it
0: feels. I don't know how to like totally spiritualize that, but there is something there with the like, the the email inbox piling mm-hmm. up and the not prayer inbox piling up mm-hmm. They're They feel very similar. Yep. You're exactly right.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh
0: man, what do you have this week?
1: I have a consolation. It's kind of one of those times where it's super easy and obvious, I don't really have to do anything. God was just very clearly in my life because I have a new nephew who was born on May 28th. And I don't know, so I, I became a niece last year and honestly it's been like the he greatest- You became an aunt. Not a
0: niece you've been a niece for a while yes
1: yeah that's true I I got a niece and became an aunt last year and it's just been such a joy and gift in my life and to like think about the fact that I get to do that all over again with another beautiful child from my older brother and sister-in-law it's just like it's overwhelming with like how How grateful I am for that gift. Totally a cliche, but every life is a miracle, and I've gotten two in the past year or so, and so I'm just looking forward to getting to meet my nephew, and yeah, and being being an aunt to him too.
0: Man, and just so cute.
1: Yeah, the cutest, like the the biggest cheeks, full shock of hair. Yeah, gonna be with great parents, so... We have very, very high hopes for Patrick.
0: (laughs) Well, congrats to yourself and Chris and Dina on uh, birthing a beautiful baby boy. Yep. All right, get us out of here, Ashley.
1: All righty. Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our editor is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media and New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.